0: I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Thank you for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen. And today we have a very interesting story that pits the English against the French. And it is going to feature a pretty famous woman named Joan. Um, I know that previously I'd said that we'd be doing the Siege of Badjos. But given the past few weeks and the burning of Notre Dame, I figured I'd go even a little bit further than the Napoleonic Wars into French history and we'd dive into the Middle Ages and the siege of Orleans. So before we get into that, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I don't know if any of you are watching Game of Thrones, but I would probably bet that some of you are. And if you're interested, I was thinking about doing some kind of uh, military strategy and tactics Game of Thrones crossover episode and putting that up on Patreon if there was any interest in it. Um, I think it could be kind of cool, given that the last few episodes there have been some uh, very, very questionable and very interesting decisions made by the, by both sides, really, in terms of the tactics that they've used in battle. So if that's something that you're interested in, or you think would be interesting to listen to, then definitely hit me up on facebook or instagram or send a message to the website and let me know and i will look into doing that i think it'll be something where i invite a guest a fellow show watcher or somebody like that on and we just kind of spitball about what's happening and why for some ungodly reason the catapults and siege equipment uh were out in front of the infantry and right up lined with the cavalry at the Battle of Winterfell. So, if you don't care about that or you think that that's entirely nerdy, by all means, let me know about that as well. So, uh, I will definitely think about putting something together if there is a call for it. Uh, The rest of the month is pretty much lined up. I'm going to try and bang out an episode every week so they might not be... The normal forty-five minute to an hour kind of uh, marathon, but I'm going to try and be more consistent and get one out every Tuesday. So for the rest of the month, we are going to visit Vietnam and take a peek at the Battle of Hamburger Hill, which should be interesting. I think that'll be uh, that would definitely be the most recent of all the battles that we've covered so far. We are going to take a step back in time and hit up the Spotsylvania battlefield and talk a little bit about the American Civil War. And then at the end of the month, we're going to round it out with a little bit of coverage of the, well, mainly, pretty much the only real consequential naval battle of World War I uh, between basically fleet action, which was the Battle of Jutland. The people out there who are interested in a book club, the Bodica book that I had wanted to start with never showed up. So we are going to start with something else. I'm going to put up two choices on Instagram. We're going to do a quick vote off and then we're just going to start right off and go from there. The book club will kind of be something that we bounce around with and do the live videos on Instagram and Facebook, so if that's what you're interested in or you are uh, an avid reader or anything like that, definitely check that out. Please don't forget, rate, review, like, subscribe, all that crap really helps, and it not only helps with the... Uh, the algorithms and the the social media stuff, but it also gives me an insight into what is working and what needs to be fixed. So please definitely do that. Um, This episode's main source was the book Orleans 1429, France Turns the Tide by David Nickel, and it's published by Osprey in their campaign series. It's awesome everything that Osprey does. Um, Sometimes it's a little dated, but it's really good. Tons of photos and images and great maps and renderings of battlefields and whatnot. So if you have the opportunity, check those books out. All right, that's enough of that. Let's go back some 590 years. The fortunes of the French monarchy, the freedom of France itself is in doubt as the 100 Years' War drags on and England seems unstoppable. With most of France in the hands of the English, it would take a miracle for the situation to change. A miracle in the form of a young peasant maid named Joan. The Hundred Years' War is very interesting because it's kind of an umbrella term. Uh, It's actually a series of smaller wars that were fought between the English Kingdom and the French Kingdom for essentially what amounts to control of modern or or continental France. Uh, And it was fought a little over 100 years, actually, and it began in 1337, and it ran through 1453. It was basically this this massive seesaw kind of affair where the English start out and they are pretty much running the table with a a number of of really important key victories. And uh, actually, we covered one of those in the uh, podcast episode about the Battle of Cressy. And so the English start the war really strong and they win a number of major battles and they are able to conclude a really uh, lopsided peace with the French. And then after decades of kind of uh, this weird back and forth, then the French grab a little bit of a toehold and are able to kind of exert some power. And then at the beginning of the 1400s, then the English come back on strong. During this whole time, this is all being played out with the backdrop of the black death or the black plague or the plague it's it's the major plague event of uh well probably up until the spanish influenza in the 20 or the uh in in the early 1900s and it definitely had i would i would say that it had a much more drastic effect on not just the world but specifically on europe than the Spanish influenza. Uh, I mean, we're talking this, the, the Black Death or the Black Plague came from what they think was probably Central Asia, the plains of Central Asia, and it would end up killing somewhere between 75 and 200 million Europeans in about... Uh, somewhere about 40 years, somewhere between uh, like 1315 to 1355, somewhere in there. Uh, It peaked in the mid 1300s. So right as this great uh, titanic battle between France and England is starting to really kick itself off, you have this massive pandemic that it really dramatically changes the entire European uh, way of life, the entire European culture. And this is as Europe is, uh, you know, we're, we're maybe five, 600 years removed from Rome collapsing, which sounds like a long time, but it's really not for a, a large group of people and and a large number of cultures that are just trying to start to figure out what they are and, and, and where the borders of these countries are and what they're, kind of their societal structure is, it's not that long. And so to have the Black Death come in and just take out massive amounts, whole towns, cities are being decimated. Economies and, and social structures are totally uh, changed and, and dramatically shifted. Uh, so at this point, you have the Black Death doing its thing, and it's it's forcing farmers, uh, the, the feudal system starts to kind of Collapse a little bit under the weight and pressure of uh, constant warfare, added to the Black Death. So you have these farmers and peasants that are moving away from the fields, and they're they're going to cities for safety and hoping that they don't end up dead from the plague. And so the feudal lands are becoming uh, less and less important, and and you have the income that is derived from feudal lands and going to these lords, and these incomes are falling dramatically. Meanwhile, you have cities completely exploding in growth, in their economy size, uh, in the population size. Importance, really. Cities become far more important after the Black Death, and interestingly actually on a uh, kind of a side note you have all these people are panicking thinking that they're going to die and so they're spending a lot of their money and they're spending their money on on merchant goods so they're importing all these you know exotic things be- so that they can experience them before the plague takes them and then they're also becoming patrons of the arts they're Paying for the these artists to create these beautiful uh, sculptures and paintings and things, because again they're trying to spend you know spend it while they have it, and it actually in a weird way the Black Death is in some sense responsible for kind of igniting what would eventually become the full on Renaissance and pulling Europe out of the Middle Ages, pulling Europe out of the medieval times where. You have, uh, you know, the, the, the brilliant artists and, and all these, uh, these great names of the Renaissance are that, that kind of culture is spawned from the, the, the terror of the black death and the, the, the bleak kind of mentality that everybody's going to die because this plague is, it sees no boundaries. It doesn't care if you're a Lord or a wealthy person or a peasant, it kills everybody. So you've got this this crazy scourge of God mentality um, that is being used to explain why the plague is hitting. And so uh, at the same time that you have the Hundred Years' War going on, you also have the Black Plague, and then you have a really intense kind of Christianity, uh, an intense kind of religious uh, mindset where... Uh, We can't explain what's happening, so it has to be an act of God scourging us of our sins, which is especially true for the French at this point, because for the French, they are losing and they believe that they're losing for a reason. So by the end of the 1300s, going into the 1400s, France and England are at somewhat of a draw. They both have gained and lost a number of different possessions, and they have kind of fought themselves into a a bit of a standstill. And then comes along the the famous, uh, or he was made famous by the great, Uh, Shakespeare himself with his band of brothers speech, you have Henry V and he comes in 1413 and sits on the English throne, but also claims the French throne. And for a little while, he's able to say that he's King of both England and France. At the famous Battle of Agincourt in 1415, he wins a, uh, a really astounding victory that we will eventually cover, in which he uses the English longbow to to really just deflower the uh, the the knights in the shining armor of uh, of all of France, and he wins this battle and is legitimately the king of both England and France for a few years now he dies in 1422 uh, fairly young and unexpectedly so it kind of as with any situation at this point in time when a king dies without uh, without a really secure line then you're you're basically asking for trouble and in this situation there's definitely he has an heir but the the son that he has is still a baby And so when you have a baby taking over the throne, you usually end up with uh, either a revolution, a civil war, or uh, some serious trouble within your own kingdom. But because there's a war with France, the English realize that they don't have to, you know, muddy up their own waters at home. They can just continue fighting abroad, but now they will have a regent and a uh, protector, and that would be the Duke of Bedford, and he will fight these wars in France to secure the baby king's uh, right on the continent. So the baby king of England and his regent want to claim France. At the same time, you have the correct or the rightful heir to the French throne, according to... Most French people, and that's Charles the Seventh who has the correct Valois blood um, now i'm going to tell you right now I will probably butcher a lot of these French names, so if I do that, please let me know, uh, even though I took two years of French, I have very, very crappy French so anyhow, Charles the seventh he's the rightful heir he's got correct Valois blood. But he's kind of a kind of a weird guy. He seems to be very weak, uh, vacillating, and we'll see later that he's kind of a shitty guy. He he doesn't really hold to. He has very little loyalty to people that help him, and uh, I'm not sure how much of his kind of weak, vacillating nature is propaganda from his enemies, because it seems like he must have been fairly smart or fairly with it. There are certain situations where he makes the right call and and does something fairly intelligent. So I'm not sure if it's just uh, it's been handed down that he's this kind of weakling king or if there's any truth to that. But he definitely at this point in the story was kind of a nothing on the on the game board. Uh, The English baby king and his regent, the Duke of Bedford, basically go ham in northern France, and they really start asserting or reasserting English power all over northern France. So as Bedford is marching his forces all over northern France, the French are kind of really hamstrung by a number of different things. Their population and their uh, ruling class has been decimated over the past few decades by the plague. They've had to deal with war, which has obviously taken a toll. And then you have kind of incompetent uninspired leadership which all combine to to put France in a in a very weakened state by the time of uh, by around fourteen twenty seven. At 1428. By 1428, all across France, people were crying out, they were begging, they were praying for a miracle. Anything, mercy, some kind of answer. Joan of Arc was born to commoners in the Lorraine region of France sometime around 1411, 1412. She was essentially a normal French girl until she turned about 13 years old, and then she started to hear the voices of St. Margaret and St. Catherine, both of whom were former French queens. And these voices basically were telling her that she was special, that she was designated by God to carry out out God's mission and to do whatever had to be done to free France of the English. She also heard the voice of the archangel Michael, and Michael was telling her that she had to save France by forcing Charles to take the throne. Because that was one of the problems here is a lot of uh, French lords and and people in France were telling Charles, take the throne. If you take the throne, we'll back you. And it seems as though Charles was either too afraid or he was biding his time and waiting for the right moment. Either way, he just kept refusing to go about taking the actual throne. And, And throughout this story, we'll see that imagery really is important. And so even if Charles taking the throne and having himself crowned was kind of an empty gesture and more of just symbolic, Uh, it really can change the way people think and change the way they they feel, and that can have a direct impact on how they fight and how wars are won. So Charles is uh, not quite doing what he needs to be doing, so this young girl, Joan, uh, basically decides to to force his hand and and make it happen. She has an uncle who's a soldier, and he pulls some strings and gets Joan uh, into a situation where she's vetted. And basically it comes down to a couple of priests sitting in a room, and they ask her a bunch of questions. She has no way of knowing the answers, but she seemingly does. And so these local priests kick it on up to the next level, and basically Joan keeps going to the next level and the next level of questioning and nobody has an answer for how this young girl can possibly be able to know what she knows so instead of questioning it any further or fighting it they give her a group of men an armed guard and they send her to the uh, the the dauphin is what he was called which is uh, charles the 7th and they send her to him to either help him or have him denounce her uh either way i'm sure they they weren't sure what was going to happen because it seems kind of crazy to send a 17-year-old girl to the king of france and say this girl's going to help you take your throne but that's apparently what the plan was so then there's this famous moment where joan gets to the uh, the great hall or the reception hall where the Dauphin was uh, kind of seeing people and seeing his court. And it's this great story because before Joan enters the great hall, apparently Charles is uh, supposed to have gone up to another quarter and said, uh, let's change outfits. And so now Joan has no way of knowing what Charles looks like. But also he's put another layer on there and completely disguised himself. So there's absolutely no way she would or should have known who Charles was in this crowd of lords and ladies. But uh, Joan apparently walks into the hall and doesn't hesitate, walks right up to the Dauphin and picks Charles out of this massive crowd of strangers. And I guess that worked as a kind of... I mean, it would be stunning to me. I, I would have no explanation for it. But in this particular situation, it had the same effect on Charles. He decides that he's going to give her a uh, an interview. And they go back and just one-on-one, they sit down and talk. And apparently, he completely convinced her. Because as she leaves, he gives this, again, 17-year-old girl with no military experience... And again, a girl in this time period, that's just beyond kind of comprehension at this point. But so Charles gives her an army, um, and I, I, it's its one of the great questions of the Middle Ages. Was Charles a true believer? Was he just using shrewd guesswork or, or maybe blind faith? Or even in, you know, in this case, it might be dumb luck, but... It's a bizarre concept to see a king in the Middle Ages hand a group of soldiers to a female commander and a 17-year-old wanted that. But anyhow... Uh, Another thing that makes me think that Charles might not have been a complete buffoon, he goes about it in a way that he's a little bit protected. He gives Joan the command of this small army, but he also assigns her a co-commander. And that's the Duke of, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but uh, Duke of Alençon. Um, And he's there basically to work as her uh, military guide, her military attache and this is a relief force of, of of somewhat decent size. Now, the reason that he gives her this force is because there's a very important city that is currently under siege, and if it falls, it has the potential to completely collapse any kind of French resistance in the future. The city of Orleans was pivotal for a couple of different reasons. First off, its position, kind of centrally located within France itself, in the in the mainland of France, and less than a hundred miles from Paris, made it extremely, extremely uh, pivotal as a transport and trade location, so it was central. It allowed for a lot of roads to kind of meet up in one spot before moving on to Paris, and it allowed for a lot of Paris uh, material to go to one kind of location before it dis- dispersed off into the various corners of France. It was also sitting astride the Loire River, and that gave it really excellent transportation uh, access, so you could move products uh, north and south along the Loire. Um, the f- The city itself was a, a fairly large uh, fortress-style city, so there's we're talking walls and gates and portcullises and towers, um, and it had been targeted by Bedford because as he moved into France uh, and started expanding out of northern France into the central and southern parts of the country, he was going to use this as his linchpin. So he would uh, collect reinforcements there. He would be able to collect a lot of uh, supplies and then easily resupply himself. It was going to be the hub of his future uh, campaigns throughout southern and central France. The other thing that's important to note is that Orleans has a or had a, a fortified bridge. So you have the city proper, and then you have a bridge that crosses the Loire, and then on the other end of that bridge you have another gated, towered, uh, well-structured, thick-walled stone gatehouse. So if you are going to take the city of Orleans, you really need to have a force on both sides of the river it's not something where you can just surround one side of the city and then let the river do the talking on the other side you have to take both sides because joan at this point has just arrived outside the city of orleans she wants to give the english the opportunity to surrender she wants to give them a chance to save themselves essentially So she gets there and she writes a letter to the English and in the letter she essentially demands their surrender and offers them the ability to put down their arms without bloodshed. The English are in a fairly strong position and so they tell her essentially to go kick rocks and Joan settles into what's going to be one of the more interesting sieges of the Middle Ages. So while Joan is proving her uh, divine gifts to both the local clergy and then all the way up to the rightful king of France and then moving her gifted army or the army she was gifted to Orleans, the English have been busy. The Earl of Salisbury and his army acting under the, the Duke of Bedford arrive in October of 1428. They arrive out this, outside the city gates with five thousand men, which really was not enough to fully surround the city. In in the sense that they weren't going to um, circumvallate the city and build a wall around it and give a true siege that would have you know no holes in it or anything like that. It's just too small. The city's uh, the city at this time was very large, and the English had a tiny army. So what they did instead was they took a number of small pivotal forts that were all around the city and then they built smaller forts connecting those. So in a kind of in an attempt to um, multiply their force, you know, as a force multiplier, they took these little network of small forts and really strength, strengthened each one individually. And so by, uh, to maximize their number, they were able to, um, to put the city under siege. One of the things that they kind of screwed up with, though, is that early on they realized that the cannon that they brought were shooting stone shot. And if you see any uh, of the drawings or images of the, the Fort city, Fortress City of Orleans at the time the walls were massive stone structures. So these stone shots that the English are firing have very, very little effect on the city walls. Which kind of leads up to the the next thing to keep in mind. The people inside the city of Orleans, the people inside the siege walls, were at first pretty okay with it. They weren't really afraid of the English because of the size of its army. Uh, They had enough ability, they had enough maneuvering ability to kind of uh, bring in a ton of stores and provisions, and they weren't under any really great pressure at this point because, again, those stone shot were just kind of uh, hitting the walls and, and splintering apart, not really doing much damage. The... Time factor is where you start to see the people being besieged get a little squirrely because time in a siege is always on the side of the, the people laying siege to the city for the most part. Most of the time, the people inside the city start to uh, go low on water or food or disease uh, starts to take a toll. Now, that's not to say that the uh, people on the outside of the walls have it easy. They don't. Often disease starts to take a toll on them as well. But if they have enough men and they're not under attack, they can just sit outside the walls for, you know, an infinite amount of time and let everybody on the inside starve to death. By the time that Joan gets to the outskirts of Orleans, the people on the inside of of the city of Orleans are starting to feel that pressure. So Joan comes and she is she arrives outside the city of Orléans, she sizes up the situation, she offers the English to surrender, they refuse, and then she receives an order from her divine voices. And they tell her that she needs to take the city of Orléans from its northern sector. She persuades the rest of the grizzled veteran officers that she's serving with and they go downriver and ferry her force across the river to the northern part of uh, the city of Orleans. Her force now uh, kind of takes the night to recuperate and rest, and then the next day this force or detachment from the main French army marches unopposed through the gates in the northern section of the city, and it's all apparently because she heard these voices. Days go by with uh, very little action, but the people in the city really uh, wanted to to kind of wait the English out. They didn't want to fight the English. They thought that they could just wait and wait, and then the English would get bored or tired or sick and just leave. Joan, on the other hand, is one of those interesting characters. She's already doing stuff that Basil Littleheart would be all about, which is she's using the indirect approach. She isn't just a frontal attack or attacking small forts. She's kind of outmaneuvering the enemy, and she's also all about putting the uh, enemy on on his heels and keeping the attack up. Joan assures them of her, uh, well, Joan assures the, the French people inside Orleans of her special status, and she kind of bolsters this by wearing this beautiful white enamel armor. She's riding this massive white horse, and she has this huge blue banner with two angels and just the words Jesus Maria on it, and she reports that, the, uh, the, that she, will, she will destroy the English, she will absolutely manhandle them. And even when she hears that the English are receiving reinforcements, Joan rejoices and celebrates that she'll be able to do her country even greater a service by ridding it of even more Englishmen. It's that time again. If you can, please go to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Rate, review, and like, subscribe, tell a friend. Uh, Feel free to binge all the Backload episodes. And if you have any suggestions, comments, concerns, please feel free to hit me on Instagram or Facebook and follow along there for some cool images and videos. All right. That's enough of that. Let's get back in. So the rest of the siege plays out in just kind of a series of interesting little events. On May 1st, Joan apparently snaps awake and says it's time to attack, jumps on her horse, th- you know, throws on her armor, jumps on her horse, and rides out to meet the enemy. Now, one of the things that is interesting is that from a lot of different sources, we find out that Joan would wear her armor like for days in a row. We're talking about tens, you know, probably somewhere around 60, 70 pounds of extra armor on this tiny little French girl, and she would wear it to sleep. She apparently at one point wore it for seven days in a row, uh, and it didn't seem to bother her. She also doesn't seem to have drank or eaten very much. Uh, apparently she would drink water and, and take a little bit of food, but that was about it all. All of this kind of furthering the mythology of of Joan as this divine warrior, and so Joan snaps awake, throws on the armor, jumps on the back of the horse, and she runs to the the Fort of Saint-Loup. And she comes on what's a, essentially a failing French sally attempt. So the French are attempting to sally out and fight the, the English off. The English are beating them. Joan runs into it, absolutely rallies the men around her. Now, again, she's not carrying a sword. She doesn't... Uh, well, uh, from some of the sources I saw, the, there was clearly a sword in her hand, but most of the written sources that I've read say that she never actually carried a weapon. She carried a banner. But anyhow, either way, she she dives into this failing French attack and rallies the men, and then the whole thing flips on its head, and they end up winning the fort. So they go from near defeat to total victory, all because Joan, the maid, flies into the attack. With this victory, she kind of is feeling her oats, and she, uh, I mean, it's a a hell of a victory. The French lose only two men, uh, and the English, all of the defenders that the French were fighting, the English, all of them died. Um, But as a victory lap, Joan calls mass. She orders everyone in her army to confess to their priest, And then she even bans all of the the prostitutes or camp girls, uh, the the vast amount of women that followed around the camps, plying their trade. She bans them all, which is which is a fairly crazy thing, because, again, prostitution in in armies at this time period, they just were like they were symbiotic. They walked hand in hand pretty much anywhere on the planet. And the idea that some 17 year old girl, you know, with no real knowledge of anything, comes in and says, you can't do that anymore, and everybody went along with it, that's really wild. So, after this victory at St. Luke, Joan again offers to accept the surrender of the English. And then we have kind of a Monty Python moment as she's asking for them to surrender. The English are shouting down from the walls of the city. Uh, of the forts that they've captured and they're kind of uh, jeering her and and making you know uh, making fun of her and calling her terrible names which on the one hand is is kind of a funny image. But at the on the other hand, it probably did nothing but inflame f- and enrage the Frenchman because they're beginning to think of Joan as, you know, as this actual holy entity. And to have these guys screaming horrible things down at her is uh, would probably do nothing but get them get their blood a little bit hotter. So uh, she declares, after offering to accept their surrender, Joan declares that the English will be gone in five days, and then she goes about preparing for battle. On May 5th, Joan sortied out of the south gate and aimed it at the the bridge that the English had captured and, and still held the second half of control. And so that's the bridge that crosses the Loire and is fortified at the other end with towers and and walls and whatnot. Instead of hitting the bridge, Joan goes to the shallows. She she takes her force into a shallow crossing to an island in the Loire, and then they take a pontoon or a bridge of boats across the river again and hit the South Gate In what again is an indirect approach, so the enemy thinks she's going to go one direction, one area, and she goes in a big, long, looping kind of maneuver and hits the enemy in a direction that they did not expect. Something that B.H. Littleheart again would probably be very, very excited about. The French quickly take the forts at uh, Jean Leblanc, and uh, an attack that started out pretty costly and and, and started slow is being done at the Fort of uh, Augustan, and eventually the the French win that in the same day, but it was kind of a bit more of a slog than at Jean Leblanc. So on May 6th, Joan hits the Fort of Les Tournay, which is that half of the bridge that's got the tower and the wall and is very, very hard. It's, it's going to be a tough, tough uh, nut to crack for the French. And so Joan hits the fortress with her army, and in the process of attacking the Les Tournay, Joan is struck by an arrow and taken from the field. Now she's struck in the shoulder or armpit but it's nothing serious. At first everybody around her probably was panicking, but because she recognize or Joan recognizes the importance of uh, her symbol, you know, her symbolic uh, presence, Joan uh, brushes it off. It's just a flesh wound and she dives right back into the fight. On May 7th, there is an interesting event where apparently a knight, a French knight, took or stole Joan's banner and again tried to attack th- uh, the uh, Les Tournay, the, the 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 fortified bridgehead. He goes and he hits that uh, that fortress, and at first nobody knows what's happening. But because they see her banner, a large number of the French army just begins to follow it. And you end up with this funny or weird coincidence where it's a lot like with the Battle of Thapsus that we covered a couple of weeks ago, where a large portion of the army of the French is working without any orders, but still attacking the enemy. So they see the banner, and they assume that Joan must be the one carrying it, so they all go and they attack the fortress. Meanwhile, Joan is screaming that she wants her banner back, she wants her banner back, and she's trying to get the 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 French to stop the attack, but it ends up working out, and the French are so... Um, So invigorated by seeing her banner go out by itself and and attack this fortress that they all are just full of bloodlust and they are able to win and take the fort. And the French basically they swarm and scale the tower and and completely destroy the English garrison inside, killing some... um, Uh, killing a large number, and then some four or five hundred of the English that are in the fort, they try and flee, they try and run away, and as they're running, they get caught on this bridge, this escape bridge, and it's burning, and it's, it's on fire, and there's a massive amount of men, and they're all trying to get out of there, and they're all wearing armor, and of course, the bridge collapses right underneath them, killing all four or five hundred of these men. And a lot of them, you know, whether or not they died from debris or, or from fire, but a large number of those men probably ended up drowning in the river under the weight of their, you know, 60, 70, 80 pounds of gear. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all to find that the vast majority ended up drowning in the river. So now the the next day after the capture of Les Tournay. The English abandon the siege of Orleans. The French try and go about killing any English that they find, and a lot of the English demand, or a lot of the French demand that there be a, a follow-up attack on the English camp. But Joan, ever the Christian says that it's impossible to attack that day because it was the it was sunday and i think it was the feast of the ascension and so it was uh inappropriate for them to continue the attack the english are given enough time to break down camp and burn any of their equipment and siege or you know forts or anything and they basically hightail it out of the area Charles the seventh is uh, you know doesn't come out smelling too good at the end here. He does a total snake move and takes complete credit for the victory at Orleans. never really mentions Joan in any of his missives or any of his letters or anything like that. Uh, so attempts to take all the credit for himself. But the people of France knew who was responsible for the victory. And so the French army is swelling at this point. The recruits are coming in from everywhere. Everyone wanted to fight for the maid or uh, everyone wanted to fight for Joan of Arc. So Joan basically takes this swelling army and she goes about liberating the area around Orleans and attacking a, a number of different English forces and cities, and she's able to win quite a few of these battles, freeing a bunch of these cities. At this point, she hasn't been beaten. At the Battle of Pate, or Pate, England was surprised and beaten, losing uh, Shrewsbury, the, the, I think, Earl or Duke of Shrewsbury. I think Earl of Shrewsbury. And he's captured on the battlefield, and it's one of those great moments where it's uh It really was kind of the the turning point of the Hundred Years' War. Joan goes on to urge Charles the Seventh to go to Riem and uh take the crown, and she leads the way with her forces, taking each city that lays between the king and the throne. And a lot of these cities go uh, and surrender to her without violence. And it's in Riem on the 16th of July in 1429 that Charles Seventh takes the crown of France and is officially crowned king, and Joan is right behind him the whole way. And also she never, ever once said anything about him not mentioning her. He, she never complained about that, which is interesting. So towards the end, uh, Joan goes on to attack Paris, and this is kind of badly planned out. Uh, Charles has... Ordered her not to attack Paris. He has also thinned out her army. So she's actually working with a very small, probably just a few hundred, three, four, five hundred men. And she's working also without any of the voices. None of her divine voices told her to attack Paris. It's at Paris that she suffers one of her first real setbacks. Uh, her attack on Paris is, is turned away and she is um, she's a failure for the first real time. A little while after that, she's taken uh, captive by uh, on well on campaign in 1430. She's captured by a group of Burgundians, Burgundians uh, or Burgundy was an ally of the English and uh Burgundy is in, like, southeast, southeast corner of France, and they were working in cahoots with the English. They buy, or they they capture Joan on the battlefield, and then they sell her to the English. And it's at this point that it kind of takes a dark turn. Um, One of the interesting uh, kind of darker aspects of... History is the 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 witch trials and the accusations of of witch witchery. I guess is the word. But uh, we where I grew up, it's the Salem witch trials. But all throughout Europe, you see a lot of of horrible instances where people are accused of being witches, and then there's really no defense. Once you're accused of it, you you. They made it impossible to really uh, figure out a way to prove that you weren't a witch. In fact, in a lot of cases, the only way to prove that you weren't a witch was to do something that directly led to you dying. Uh, And in this instance, we have another one of those where Joan is put on trial as a witch witch. And before she even gets to trial, we can assume that she's been starved and uh, mentally, emotionally tortured, harangued, and uh, possibly physically tortured. I'm not 100% sure on that. I had one source that said it was the case, but I only had the one source that said that. So I don't know for sure, but definitely she went through some serious shit on the way to her trial. Once she gets to trial, she is uh, she's basically in a no-win position. There's a, a stacked against, a deck against her. The English want her to burn, and there's really no witnesses that will come to speak on her behalf. However, there are six hundred witnesses that brought testimony to the court, and not one of them spoke. Against her and said that she was a witch. The only people that were demanding that or saying that she was a witch were the people on the uh, within the court itself. Uh, she was eventually found guilty, and she was burned at the stake on May 30th, 1431. The Hundred Years' War went on for another twenty years but a combination of France getting, uh, being imbued with greater morale and, and a greater sense of fighting spirit by the wonderful leadership of Joan, and infighting between the Burgundians and English and just kind of a, a general malaise with the English military point of view, would lead to eventual French victory and what amounts to modern France as we know it in terms of the, uh, the actual makeup of the country itself. So to kind of wrap this up, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this. I think it's an interesting, very, very interesting story. Um, I It's hard to really kind of figure out what actually happened. Uh, did Joan really hear voices? Uh, I know that a lot of people believe now that this is kind of uh, your standard schizophrenia, maybe, uh, that... Her ability to have this manic energy and not eat uh, seems like it might line up with some symptoms of, of serious uh, mental disorder. Was it possible that she was truly hearing voices from higher beings? I guess that's entirely up to if, if that's something you want to believe. Uh, I come away with these questions like, why did these men believe her? There must have been something that she did or said that truly shook these men to their core to make them believe that this young girl had the the knowledge and the ability to, to save the day, essentially, to win the day. Um, I also wonder, how was she right? If she wasn't really hearing voices and she really didn't know who Charles VII was, when she walked into that crowded hall, how did she know who he was? I, I suppose she could have read people's body language, maybe people around him were kind of standing different or people were deferring to him with their body language, I don't know it just, there are these different little moments where you're like I, how is it possible for this 17 year old girl to be a better military mind then with no experience, with no training, with no real understanding of of what's happening, how is she able to look at the siege of Orleans and know exactly what needs to happen? How is she able to, uh, you know, walk around in armor, sleep in her armor, and, and not have it bother her the way that it does these hardened and grizzled warriors? And ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether or not she did hear voices or didn't or whether or not she was mentally disabled or mentally, um, she was having mental disorders or whatever because it didn't, it, it's not so much about that as it is about the symbology. Uh, she became this icon, this, this living myth for the French people and they were able to use that to to carry them through to see the end of this massive uh, this massive traumatic war that had lasted whole whole generations had gone from from beginning to end without seeing peace and part of the way that they were able to find their their path through this war uh, or f- part of the reason that France was able to find its path through this war was through the the imagery. And the belief that this young maiden, this young virgin, this this young Joan of Arc was brought to them by God and imbued with that, with God's righteous anger or whatever it is. And and, then through her, the French people were able to take that into themselves and, and move forward against the English. Uh, I think it's an interesting question too this is one of those great history what ifs if the English conquer France is it for the long term is it for a short period of time would it take the form of Williams conquering of England and the Saxons in in uh, 1066 where you know hundreds of years later you had this bizarre but but incredibly wonderful little uh Uh, amalgamation of different cultures and and you end up with you know what essentially is modern britain but i don't know the idea that england would take france for more than a few decades is kind of I, i i don't see that being the case i bet you that if that had happened france would have kind of shrugged off the english within at least by by 1500 at the at the latest Um, to kind of wrap it up at the end, you have, uh, Joan is eventually made a saint. I I believe she's canonized is the term, uh, in 1920. So we now have Saint Joan of Arc. Uh, again, I hope you liked that episode. I definitely enjoyed researching it. I know that I was kind of Brief in talking about certain aspects, but if I go deep dive in each one of these, then it's a Dan Carlin show and it's going to run six hours. And although I'd love to do that, I have a day job and don't have all the time in the world to spend researching, writing, and recording. Um, if you have a, sugge- a suggestion for a battle or something that we should be covering, definitely go to patreon or go to instagram and facebook and put that out there uh, the patreon the great commander series where i do a deep dive i'm trying to figure out how to to get consistent with that uh, it's just difficult trying to put out an episode every week and then put on another episode um, so we'll be working on that in the future so if you have a general you want me to cover definitely put that on Instagram or Facebook or email me, and I'll i will uh, I'll try and work it in there. Okay, thank you very much for listening. Uh, again, up next, we are going to Vietnam, and for the first time, we're going to be covering the Battle of Hamburger Hill. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed. We'll talk to you next time.